Happy Father's Day. I'll add my voice to that. It was my privilege in the eight o'clock service this morning to have uh, my mom and dad, about whom I have often spoke. Uh, they were with us this weekend, um, and we have had a good time visiting with them. And my older brother up in Tampa was set up to take them to lunch. So they had to get the eight o'clock service done, hit the road, and pick up lunch with uh, their, their eldest up that way. You know, the, the, the universe and the universe is God reserves the role of father for guys. I know, profoundly obvious stuff, right? Uh, Fascinating that that that's probably hate speech in some generation, what I just said, especially if I were to go on and define what a guy is. Um, If you follow such things in your news, uh, you saw some news coming out of New Orleans this week with our denomination, uh, and another role that the universe is God has reserved for guys. Um, The Southern Baptist Convention down the years has not always gotten everything right. I'll be the first to acknowledge that this time they did. When the Southern Baptist Convention affirmed that the role of pastor, which is synonymous biblically and practically, with the role of elder and bishop. Those roles are used interchangeably in the word of God for the same office and uh, the elders of the local church. And that role is reserved for men. It, It is. And our denomination got that right this time, and I am glad. If you follow the the secular news sources, the headline is something like, Southern Baptists once again affirm that they hate women. You know, because that's how such things get reported. Uh, In order for this church, McGregor Baptist, to ever have a a woman, who, by the way, we, we praise God for his creative order, we praise God for the, the women in our lives in, the, in that same eight o'clock service. I was able to look right over in here and see my mom, my wife, and my daughter-in-law. Three women of whom I am very fond. Three women, each of whom is in her own way a force of nature. And I praise God for those women. But there are roles in God's created order that are dependent upon God's created will in gender. And uh, for this church to depart from the truth of, of um, male leadership in the role of elder, we would have to amend our church's constitution. We would have to abandon our church's confession of faith. The Baptist faith and message um, from the version that was written in the year 2000, which we as a congregation have embraced as our confession of faith. That, that confession affirmed that pastors have to be men in the year 2000 with little fanfare. God's word didn't change that much in 23 years, no matter what Rick Warren wishes it said. Yeah, that's Warren with two R's and an N. The, um, we would have to amend our constitution, abandon our confession of faith, and apostatize from the truth of God's word were we to ever follow that Christ-dishonoring route. That being said, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, we come this morning to the last paragraph of 2 Corinthians chapter four. Sometimes the chapter divisions in a 
uh, passage don't, don't make much sense. We know that the chapter and verse divisions come way later than the text. When Paul sat down and wrote this letter to the church at Corinth, he did not number his sentences as verses, and he didn't put in the chapter breaks. They were added much later as a, as a sort of an indexing and addressing system, and that's a good thing to have that. It helps us find our way through. But sometimes the chapter breaks get it really, really right, and there is a unit of thought contained thematically in a chapter. This is such a case. The, uh, the theme that arcs through 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is the, thir- the theme that, that comes from our, our, our hope that arises from knowing the marvelous truth that the most valuable thing in the universe, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the most valuable undertaking in the universe, the universe's most valuable enterprise, as God the Son is seeking and saving a people for himself out of a fallen and broken universe, that we who are the followers of Christ carry in our lives these clay pots we spoke of last week, this, this treasure of the gospel of Christ. And as that reality controls, defines, and focuses our lives, we do not lose heart. This little paragraph at the end that we'll be looking at this morning begins with the the sentence, so we do not lose heart. You go back to chapter four, verse one. The first sentence of chapter four says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So the whole chapter is kind of neatly tied together. Let's look at verses 16, 17, and 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's look at these these three verses. It's not a horribly complex paragraph in how it's structured. There are three themes that emerge. Roman numeral one, our process. Our process. Though our outer self, letter A on your outline, our outer self is wasting away. I did a bit of research this week and the, the answer to this question varies greatly depending on what sort of categories of spending are included. But um, various sources uh, kind of came up with the consensus for me. How much do Americans spend every year on health and wellness? Now, broadly, that includes, that includes things that are, that are medically um, essential, but it also includes all the different ways that we get ourselves, I don't know, sanded, tucked, nipped, snipped, folded, spindled, mutilated, tarred, feathered, everything that we do to kind of, kind of hold things off. It is a $450 
billion dollars a year investment we make. And yet, you're dying. May as well turn your face toward that truth. We're all dying. Our outer selves, our physical bodies are wasting away. You can do whatever you want to do about it. But the fact of the matter is, if, if one day there's a carved headstone somewhere or a plaque on a shelf somewhere, the date that will be carved on the right-hand side of that plaque is one day closer than it was yesterday. And that's true for everybody in the room. Oh, I know that Enoch and Elijah didn't die, but that's two out of a lot. And you shouldn't count on that kind of exception. I know the Lord's going to return and there will be a generation of believers that will not face death. And I long for that day as you do, but so far it hasn't happened. And it seems that odds are you should anticipate death. We don't like thinking about that. We, we go to a great deal of effort not to think about it. One of, the, one of the most intriguing words for me in our language is the word amusement. It's another multi-billion dollar industry in our nation. Amusement. Um, it's an interesting word. The root word in amusement is the word muse. To muse. It's a verb. Um, you know what it means, at least many of you do. What is it to muse? What does the word mean? Okay, you have to talk out over the rain. What is it to muse? To think deeply about something. That's exactly right. To consider carefully or think deeply is to muse. When you slap that A on the front of a word, what does that A do in a word? It's raining. Wow. What, is, what does the A on the front of a word mean? I'm closer to it than you are. It's louder up here. Give me a break. What does the A on the front of a word do? It negates it. It makes it its opposite. So what is amusement? We spend billions of dollars a year to avoid thinking. We don't want to think. We're the, um, we're the most amused generation in history. We're very, very good at it. We invest billions in not considering anything deeply. One of the reasons I, I don't mind preaching funerals is that in a world that has the amusement running at a fever pitch, typically at a funeral, we're not being amused. It's a setting where we can have a conversation about life and death because the reminder that death is rushing toward us is right before us, and that's not a bad reminder. So getting the bad news out of the way, your inner self, I'm pardon me, your outer self is wasting away. It's a process. But letter B on your outline, also a process. Your inner self is being renewed. Day by day. When you came to faith in Christ, if you have come to faith in Christ, you are a new creature. By the way, if you have not come to faith in Christ, that onrushing death 
is for you really bad news and it's going to get worse. If you're outside of Christ today and you are optimistic about your ultimate future, you are delusional. Such hope as you think you have is a lie. And if you die outside of Christ, if you never come to the point that you repent of your sin and follow Jesus Christ as Lord, you will, immediately after your death, face the righteous judgment of a holy God whose standard in that judgment is not how well you did with the opportunity you had. His standard is the utter holiness and perfection um, described in his word, demonstrated by Jesus Christ. And against that standard, you will not do well. You will be condemned and you will be sentenced to eternal punishment. But for those of us who are in Christ, when we face that same judgment, what he will examine is not our actual track record, but the substituted in track record of Jesus Christ who again demonstrated and embodied that perfection as both God and man and died on the cross to, to secure his place as the substitutionary sacrifice so that one day when you face the Lord in judgment, child of God, you will hear well done, good and faithful servant on the basis not of your track record, but on the basis of the track record of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus. Because our inner self is being renewed. We're wearing out. We're on a collision course with death. But when we came to faith in Christ, we became a new creature. Remember, salvation is always free. It is always transformational, and it is always permanent. Those, any of those things are absent, what you are hearing or what you are talking about is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's some substitute. It's transformational. If anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. And that internal life of Christ is, is being formed in us. We are being transformed. The Word of God says we are transformed by the renewing of our mind as we uh, study God's Word. We are being transformed by the internal work of God the Holy Spirit. We're being renewed day by day even as the end of this life rushes toward us, which then speaks to Roman 2, our preparation. We are being prepared for what's next. Now verse 17 uses a term that I would struggle to use. Like you, I am pretty well acquainted with things that can go wrong on this earth. Like you, I've been, I've been in the ICU when it's time to get the earthly goodbye over with. The other end, I've been with, I've been with some of you in the 
neonatal ICU when it becomes evident that that brand new little life isn't gonna last long on this world. I've been with you when the economic devastation wipes out your job and the financial earthquake shakes your family. I've wept with you in the counseling room when it becomes evident that the family's not gonna make it. Prayed with you when the uh, doctor's diagnosis in one sense doesn't tell you anything new. You knew you were gonna die someday, but the report you just got has made it clear that day is sooner than you hoped it would be. We've been there. And the Lord uses here in his word a term for all of that that I would never use. I couldn't get away with it. If I came up with the term that we're about to look at, I would rightly be accused of being insensitive. The living God is not insensitive. He just dwells in conscious and constant awareness of the much larger picture. And from where he sits, and from the perspective to which he invites us, here's his term for all the trials and troubles of this life in this world. Roman numeral two, letter A on your outline. Light, momentary affliction. It's affliction, but it is both light and momentary. We sang about it in our very first song in this worship service. Um, why should I tremble when trials draw near? Be still and remember the worst that can come just shortens our journey and hastens us home. Light, momentary affliction. Remember in chapter three, Paul made a, a comparison of the, the lesser to the greater when he was talking about the, the light and glory of the law. And he said, he said that, that, that while that is real, and it is, we compared it as a word picture to a, a really bright flashlight in a dark room. A really bright flashlight in a dark room will, will show you things you've never seen, teach you things you never knew. Take that very same, very bright flashlight outside in the middle of a field on a noontime, uncloudy day, and that light of that flashlight is no dim, no less bright. It's the same light, but in comparison to the noonday sun, it just doesn't matter near as much. Here, he, he starts to make the same comparison, but then he has to admit it's beyond all comparison. Again, God's word, verse 17, with letter B, the eternal weight of glory. The present affliction is light. What's coming is heavy. The present affliction is momentary. What's coming is forever. Oh, the heaven that he is preparing for his children. Oh, the glory that is in store. You want to lose heart? 
Put all of your priority thinking on the here and now. Put all of your attention and focus on this life as it is. There's plenty of bad news to go around. There is plenty to be upset about. There is plenty to lose heart over. The word of God itself says that if in this life we have hope, if in only this life we have hope, we are of all men most miserable. Which leads us to Roman numeral three, our perspective. Verse 18, our perspective. What matters most? Where is the heart of our focus? What defines us, drives us, settles us? Where can we focus so that we do not lose heart? Verse 18 evokes in me when I was studying, it made me think of Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, one and two. Now before I read those verses, I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna do a little study Bible footnote for you, a little small rabbit chase. Hebrews 12.1 refers to the great cloud of witnesses. He's, he's just been talking in chapter 11 about this, we call it sometimes the roll call of the heroes of the faith and going through some of the, some of the great persons that we meet in the Old Testament. He talks about those who have gone before us and who in difficult times and horrible circumstances have nonetheless proceeded by faith, by faith, by faith because they looked to what was beyond this present life. And they're called in Hebrews 12:1 a great cloud of witnesses. Let me tell you what they, what they aren't. They are not sitting in heaven's grandstands watching us and cheering us on. I know that that has, that has made some poetry. I know that's made some, some good gospel song lyric, but that's not what's being said here. The people in heaven are paying attention to the resurrected Christ. They are not hovering over your life and cheering you on. I know, I know, they're just not. Well, what does it mean that they are a great cloud of witnesses? They are witnesses not because of their observation, but because of their witness testimony. They are telling us their stories which they have left behind. They bear witness to the faithfulness of God with their life. And in that sense, the, the word of God telling us their stories surrounds us with their witness, so we do not lose heart. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is our perspective? Well, letter A on your outline under Roman three, the invisible versus the visible. 
We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. What matters most? What captures your heart most? What focuses the priority of your life most? What drives your thought life most? What drives your emotional state most? Is it the things that you experience and see all around you? Or is it the more real and more permanent things beyond? I am, I had, as far as memory serves, I had the worst leg cramp of my life last night. I don't know what it feels like to get shot. I've never been shot. But I was, um, I was sitting in that, I've told you about my chair. One of God's blessings in my life is my comfy chair. Well, there were some folks in our living room last night and rather than re-aim the chair, I sat stupidly. My chair has high arms. I like a chair with high arms. So I turned 90 degrees and used the arm of the chair as the chair back and just flung my legs over the other arm. I probably should have suspected that I would at least put both my legs to sleep because that's not great for the circulation. When I tried to stand up, my right there, the inside of my right leg clenched up tighter than I knew it was capable of and if I hadn't caught myself, it would have sent me to the floor. It was Bad. And I know, I know magnesium deficiency. I know, I know about 20 different home remedies. The one that I tried that a friend told me about that actually seemed to help is I drank a glass of pickle juice. I don't recommend it. But whether psychosomatically or actually it seemed to help, the cramp eased up and life went on. I don't want to hurt like that, but I was reminded in those five minutes of an era during which most of the parts of my body obeyed most instruction that I sent them. Most of the time. I was further reminded that the days of that era are numbered. Because I tell you what, my right leg wasn't taking any orders for those few minutes last night. <laughs> I can focus on stuff like that and I can put myself in a complete and total cloud. You can too. Well, Brother Russell, that's the real world. Oh, I know. But I, just, I just know the realer world. I'm not denying the reality of this world. Just like I would not deny the bright light of God's law, it just gets lost in the brighter light of the gospel. And the reality of this world is swallowed up by the reality of what is to come. We focus on the visible, not, I mean the invisible, not the visible. Letter B, we focus on the permanent, not the passing. For the things that are seen are transient. They're flying right by but the things that are unseen are eternal. I'll put us through a little exercise that I sometimes do with the high school students that I teach. Um, 
So I want you, in a moment, I'm gonna invite, I'm gonna invite most of you to raise your hand. And if you're comfortable doing so, I want you to keep your hand up until I tell you to put it down. And I'll tell you by groups to put it down. So let's see, let's see if we can do this together. It, since, you know, it's Father's Day. If you can name both your father and your mother, whether biological or adopted, if you can name your father and mother, I wish you'd raise your hand. Pretty much everybody. There's some that, honestly, there's some that can't. But pretty much everybody can name mom and dad. All right, now... If you can name your four grandparents, keep your hand up. Otherwise, put it down. If you can name your four grandparents. All right. Still got a whole lot of people. Okay, now let's, now let's get interesting. If you can name your eight great-grandparents, keep your hand up. Otherwise, put it down. And there they go. There they go. Now it's, now it's the genealogical hobbyists. I know what you're doing on Ancestry.com. I got gotcha. you. All right, let's see. Now, I don't mean that you can look it up. I mean that you know it. Let's go to the 16 great-grandparents. Great-great-grandparents, I mean. All right? I think I got everybody. If, if I missed you, the lights are blinding me, and I think you get my point. That's you. That's you. As the years of their life go by, it's very likely that Philip and Kyle will have a pretty big library of, of memory of me. Their lives will possibly, probably continue after mine ends if the actuaries have it right. I know that anything can happen. But Philip and Kyle are likely to remember me pretty well. Levi and Reese will probably have some set, especially Levi. They call me Boomer. Reese now, when she sees me on a video chat or when I walk into the room, hits whatever's close by and says, boom! Yes, my grandfather name also works as a verb. Be envious. Reese and Levi's children may have some recollection that there was once a guy named Russell S. Howard. Maybe. Their children unlikely to even be able to pick my name out of a list unless they're genealogy hobbyists. And so it is with you. The thing is flying right on by and you are flying right on by with it. You won't be even a memory in just three or four generations. And if this life is what you've got, a vapor. So you better anchor yourself to something a bit more permanent because you are going to live forever. You are going to live forever as you. Just not here. So why in the world would you put all your eggs in the basket of here? Why in the world would here get to drive who you are? If you let here and now drive who you are, you will lose heart. But because we look beyond the here and now to the more real reality of the Lord and his kingdom, we do not lose heart heart.